Welcome to episode 51 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawkin, and my returning guest is Ashley Naftool, a writer and playwright in Scottsdale, Arizona, and one of my favorite people on Twitter. So happy to have you back on the show, Ashley. I'm glad to be back, Jesse. Thank you. Our subject for today was Ashley's choice for a topic. We're going to be talking about the work of the Australian filmmaker Andrew Dominic. He's one of the best and most interesting filmmakers working today. He seems to make a movie every six or seven years. And Ashley and I are going to actually discuss all four of them. They're all films about outlaws to some degree. We'll be discussing his 2000 debut Chopper, the movie that brought us Eric Bana, his high-profile 2007 box office disappointment, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. By the way, Brad Pitt had it in his contract that uh, you couldn't change the title. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about their follow-up, the controversial 2012 crime film Killing Them Softly, and his 2016 Nick Cave music documentary One More Time with Feeling. But we'll also talk about his already controversial upcoming Netflix film, Blonde, which we're not going to get until next year at this point. Apparently, there's a fight between Netflix and Dominic over Final Cut. So this is a director with a strong track record, despite his relatively small filmography. When did you get on the Dominic train, Ashley? Uh, it was actually earlier this year. I, I watched Killing Them Softly for a time, and I kind of went into it with like, basically no real idea of what he did as a filmmaker. I was just blown away by it. It's a film that I, I just couldn't stop thinking about. And I also saw um, Was More Time of Feeling, which came out in theaters, but I, I didn't connect initially that he had made that as well. Andrew Dominic was born in New Zealand, but was educated in Australia and grew up in Melbourne and went to uh, the Melbourne Film School, where he learned his trade. He started directing films in the year 2000. He had made music videos and TV commercials, but He made his big screen debut in the year 2000 with Chopper. And I saw that uh, when it was released and it knocked me out. I thought it was a a very, very funny and wonderful movie. And and also in supremely bad taste. (laughs) It's a biography of the life of the notorious Australian criminal and modern folk hero, Mark Chopper Reed. It was controversial at the time because Chopper was still alive and that the movie was not particularly judgmental about the life of this bonafide sociopath. What did you think of Chopper? Oh, I loved it. I, I, I would say I started killing them softly. I think Chopper's one of my, my, my favorite Dominic films. Uh, like I said, it is, it's, it's a very uncomfortably visceral film. I mean, just, just the scene in the beginning where he's getting his ears like uh, chopped, getting carved off. Like, <laughs> I was squirming so hard in my seat in that sequence. But just the human, like, like Eric Bana's performance in that's incredible. Just the humanity of it, where on one hand, you are terrified of this man, but you also feel sympathetic for him. And, and he plays this really wonderful, unhinged personality. He's both kind of like, both at times kind of like admirable and pathetic. It's, it's, it's this whole range of emotion. This quote is like textbook sociopath <laughs> language. <laughs> this is a quote from Chopper Reed in 2013. He died a few years ago, a couple of years ago. But he was interviewed in the New York Times and he said, Look, honestly, I haven't killed that many people. Probably about four or seven, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> like, I've killed about four or seven people, <laughs> depending on how you look at murdering someone. <laughs> and it's like, what are you talking about? Reed spent 13 months outside of prison between the ages of 20 and 38. 
This movie is set in one of the periods between long prison sentences. His rap sheet is huge. He was uh, convicted of crimes including armed robbery, firearm offenses, assault, arson, impersonating a police officer, and kidnapping a judge, which he got a very long prison stint for. We join the movie in the middle of that stint. He is getting into these incredible fights with uh, guys in prison, like uh there there was this scene that was just an amazing scene where one of his buddies uh because he's kind of a wanted man in prison in in australian prisons i mean you get extra points for killing a very famous other convict so one of the guys in jail uh stabs him in the front a few times but he doesn't even flinch or react to being stabbed right he hugs the guy yeah, <laughs> he, is, he you know he, he's not even angry or even disbelief. He's just more like, "What are you doing? Like, stop that!" This with this sort of homoerotic edge to it, like they're embracing. They're very, very close. And then we move back and we see that uh, Eric Bana's shirt is completely filling with blood from all the stabbings, and and strangely, uh, Mark Chopper Reed won't testify against his friend for stabbing him. He won't admit that he was even stabbed. Uh, he just pretends that he blacked out and nobody could tell you what happened. And, uh, but what pisses him off is when the guy, uh, tries to use, um, there's like a process in jail where you can get compensation for, uh, violence against yourself in prison. And that really offends Chopper Reed's, uh, morals and sensibilities. <laughs> Which leads to that great courtroom scene where, uh, Jimmy Lawson, the guy who stabbed them is like cross examining him. And his Chopper's like, I lent you that suit. Yeah. <laughs> and the judge is like it is a disbelief. I'm told you used a shotgun in this attempted abduction, is that so? Yeah, right here under my coat. Oh, yeah, nothing down there now, huh? Oh, I wish there was. I bet you do. Who would you like to use it on, hey? This judge? No, I'd use it on you at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I bet you would. You hold human life very cheap, don't you, Mr. Reed? Some human life, yeah. Oh, you have a lot of hostility towards me, don't you? No, perish the thought. Even lent you that suit you're wearing in court today. You lent him that suit? Yeah. I, I realise it's not a fashion competition, Your Honour, but if he'd have worn what he's going to wear, you'd have given him 20 years for bad taste. <laughs> <laughs> he has to prove that he's mentally unwell, and that's why he chops his ears off, or he has some his ears chopped off, and I guess that's one of the reasons why he got the nickname of Chopper. Because the, the, the prison warden is just powerless to stop him from, like, mutilating himself to get his way. Like, that's how cut off from, like, normal brains Chopper is. <laughs> like, well, I thought the scene that was really interesting, too, is when he's talking to the warden, the police chief, is that um, this is something that comes up later in the film, is that he almost has this paternal relationship with the authorities, where he mm-hmm. talks to them almost like they're, they're his family. And, like, later on, where um, he's talking to the cops in the bar, and he kind of leads off by saying, oh, like, I'm so sorry. I know you're disappointed in me. It's not like he's talking to his mother at first. And yeah. cuts, he realizes these two cops were grilling him. See, this is almost weird, like, like, like this like son who did wrong kind of relationship to the 40s. I thought it was really interesting. Mark Chopper Reed himself recommended that the young Australian comedian Eric Bana play him. He had seen him, I guess, in jail when he was watching the Australian comedy show Full Frontal. And Eric Bana was, uh, at the time, known for being a TV comedian. He'd only been in one film previous to this, a comedy, an Australian comedy, where he played a comedic role. He had never been cast in a dramatic role. But what a discovery. This is one of the great uh, uh, performances I've ever seen. I would go that far. He's incredible. 
in this movie, he also goes through this incredible physical transformation because the film was shot in two phases. They shot all the sterile prison stuff in an actual prison. And then they took a month off and Eric Bana gained all this weight to play the bloated older Reed in the sequences that take place a relatively brief time that Chopper is not in prison. Um, after he gets out for kidnapping the judge, he lives in, I guess in, in Australia, I guess it takes place in Melbourne, but he he's out on the loose for a little while and we get to see uh, Chopper's life outside of prison. But the film has a different visual look for those stretches. Those scenes are shot in saturated colors with really loud wallpaper and very, very strong uh, primary color scheme to illustrate his garish lifestyle and his paranoia. Dominic described it as a visual overload was what he was trying to do there. And uh, so the film feels different in and out of prison in a, in a very interesting way, the way that it must feel when you've been in isolation for so long and to suddenly find yourself back in society. Right. And Chopper company comes out of prison. He still means he still kind of the same mentality that he had in prison, right? He's very paranoid. He kind of constantly assumes that everybody's holding a grudge against the Evo. It's really him who's projecting his grudges onto them. So he's constantly mm-hmm. kind of on the defensive. And he uh, loves to hang out at this really crass uh, club called Bojangles. Bojangles. Yeah. <laughs> Where you hear all this uh, obnoxious music and uh, Eric is getting like really mad. And there are guys in the club that uh, have done him wrong in the past or he's like <laughs> mutilated them in the past and they're afraid he's going to try again. <laughs> He's got a girlfriend. As soon as he gets out, uh, he gets back together with this sex worker girlfriend of his, and they do heroin. Um, the one thing that Mark Chopper Reed didn't like about uh, the movie about his life was the insinuation and the implication that he did drugs because he was drug-free, man. I never touched the stuff. <laughs> so it's so strange that that's what he didn't like about the movie. <laughs> Not like kneecapping people, <laughs> but <laughs> that he would ever touch cocaine or heroin. Well, that's what you think, too, because I know uh, Dominic did an interview this year's Guardian where he talks about the film. And he talks, and uh, the reporter's like, you know, people could watch this film and think that you're on his side. And he goes, oh, the film is definitely on Chopper's side. And it's interesting how, you know, it does, I won't say the portrayal is sympathetic necessarily, but there are moments in the film where it feels like it kind of stacks the deck a little bit in his favor what Dominic was trying to do in this movie was not so much to be on, to be uh, in favor of anything that Chopper did, but Dominic wanted to do something that isn't done very often in movies. When there are movies about the crime world, they're mostly about the victims, but you never really get to see a movie from the perspective of the victimizer. True. Well, it's interesting because um, one scene I'm in particular is the moment where it's after he go to the club Bojangles, he gets paranoid because he sees his girlfriend Tanya talking to uh, the Turkish guy that he later kills. So he goes to her mom's house and he barges in, he chases her upstairs. And there's a scene where he corners her in the bathroom and beats her. But the way Dominic frames it, you don't see her. You just see, like, she's behind a bathroom wall and it's angled. So you just see Chopper punching her and then pushing her mom down, walking away. Mm-hmm. So you don't see the, the, so the, the actual victim is domestic violence. You don't really see what happens to them. It kind of puts them at, a, at, a, at an intentional remove. And I thought that's kind of an interesting thing because I think there's this thing for audiences where if you see a character, you know, beating a woman, like that instantly kind of curls whatever you see you have for them. It's like you watch Wolf, Wolf of Wall Street. Like, you know, Jordan Belfort is a bad guy. 
Well, you see him punch like his pregnant wife. That's when it's like, if you didn't already get by now, he's a terrible person. That kind of puts the cherry on it. I'm a very careful viewer and a very uh, critical viewer when it comes to the depiction of violence in movies and, and the intentions of the filmmaker and whether or not they're crossing a line, mm-hmm. whether or not they're crossing my line, uh, whether or not I understand what they're trying to do, whether or not uh, I think that they're being irresponsible in what they're doing. One of the things that I like so much about Chopper is that he goes right up to that line. In my opinion, he doesn't go over the line, but he, he goes right up to the line. Um, it's, it's almost like he's trying to understand in an anthropological way, <laughs> the, yeah. the psyche of like a sociopath without making a movie about what a great guy he is or how wonderful he is. He's pathetic. Right. It's like, it's like the two moments in the film where you see Chopper kill someone in both instances, he almost immediately like panics and like goes, are you okay? Like he almost yeah. like, like, like he almost disassociates. It's almost like he didn't do it in those moments. Like, when he stabs Freddy in the beginning, that guy is like part of this like this mob group. Like he like has like almost a pathetic breakdown right after doing it. Yes, and another one uh, later in the film where he seems like very disappointed in himself for going through it. It's like the impulse control kicks in after the crime has been committed. <laughs> <laughs> and then afterwards, he gets offended because like he's like confessing the crime. It's like these two cops, but. These two cops who keep grilling him at the bar, and like they don't—they basically don't believe. They either don't believe him, or don't, or don't want to accept his confession. So they keep telling him, "Oh yeah, somebody else did it. We, we we picked them up already. We have the murder weapon." Like he gets offended, but they won't actually accept his confession. Yeah, like he pulls this sawed-off shotgun out and tells them <laughs> to take it to forensics to prove that it's been discharged from his gun, and they're like, "No, Chopper, we don't need to do that. We've got a confession." <laughs> Yeah, Banavo, um, getting back to something you said earlier, like, he really is incredible in this movie. To the point where like you watch like his American films, it's like a night and day difference in the quality of performance. Like he's just he's really just astonishing in this film. This was the movie that I guess got him cast as the Hulk in the Ang Lee Hulk. Really? That was like his American debut. That was shortly after Chopper. Because uh this one movie put him on the map. Like people were like, Who is this guy? I've never heard of him before. That was one of the best performances I've ever seen. <laughs> he's never lived up to that debut. I like uh, Munich, and I think he's very good in Munich. But mm-hmm. I have not been wowed by anything else by Eric Bana. I wonder if a part of it is the accent. Because there are actors like Charlie Hunnam and like Sam Worthington where in their own native accent, they're actually pretty good actors. But because they have to mm-hmm. do like, the flat American voice, like it kills their ability to be expressive because they're trying to just sound quote-unquote, normal the whole time. I want to ban it something similar, because in Chopper, like, he doesn't have to mask his accent at all. He, he, he can just be as, as natural and direct as he wants. But in America, like, I think he tries to have that more, like, you know, conventional cadence, and maybe that, maybe that makes him more stilted as an actor. I'll tell you what. You try getting from where you're sitting to the front door, because I reckon I could shoot you from where you're sitting to the front door. Because that's about as long as you've got to produce some money for me right now. I'll give you 20 seconds to produce some cash or else I'll fucking shoot you. One, hey, two, I've got three, no cash, mate. Four, five, I told you I've got no cash. Listen, you come in. Seven, I fucking eight, give you drinks. Nine, What's the matter with you? Sit the fuck down. Listen, 10, hey, 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 11, listen, 12, hey, hey, 12, 13, mate. What are you 14, doing? 15, Stop with 16, the fucking county. What are you counting for? 18, 19. I want to read you uh, another quote from Dominic to get your thoughts on it, because I think this is a key uh, thing that Dominic, uh, the line that Dominic walks in terms of 
depicting violence that is not to be confused for endorsement, but at the same time is supposed to make you feel kind of conflicted. Dominic said, I like violence. I like to feel something when I see a movie. If something's violent, I want it to affect me and I want it to be distressing. If it's distressing, I feel really happy. I see where he's coming from as an artist, even though those words sound sort of like you wouldn't like to hear that from a guy, (laughs) you know, on the bus with you. (laughs) But I see where he's coming from. The the idea of the, the difference between actual violence and movie violence. I mean, it makes sense to me because I, I think the idea that the violence would be distressing is like it shouldn't be entertaining. Like there's no moment like in Chopper where the, when something violent happens where you go, oh, fuck yeah, that's awesome. Like 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 none of it is, is necessarily cathartic in a good way. Like it's gross. When it happens, like it makes you flinch. It, it's unpleasant to witness and the people who are, are dealing the violence and receiving it are not having a good time about it either. So mm-hmm. I, I, so I think you know that's how I interpret the distressing. It's like yeah, violence should have weight and consequence, and it shouldn't be presented in a way that's like sugarcoated or too like choreographed. And none of the violence in Chopper looks choreographed. Like, it looks like real violence. Like when he stabs that guy in the prison, like it looks like a real shaking, and it, and it's just not very, um, it's not very aesthetically pleasing. The moment, like it's not an, an athletically impressive scene. It's just a guy jabbing somebody in the face repeatedly for shit. Dominic showed the movie to to Chopper Reed, and he said he'd never been more afraid in his life. Because <laughs> what if he didn't like it? He like he could conceivably murder Andrew Dominic if he doesn't like it. But he got the green light from him. I mean, this is one of the things that Dominic talks about, in, not only in Chopper but in subsequent movies, is the idea of um, the 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 hand in hand relationship between crime and notoriety and mm-hmm. uh, publicity. Chopper wrote several best-selling books in Australia. He wrote some crime books. He also wrote some self-aggrandizing books about his own crimes. But the the one that made me laugh in a gallows humor kind of way was that he wrote a children's book. <laughs> it was called Hooky the Cripple. And attempts in Australia were made to ban the book. But they also had a feeling that Reed wanted them to ban the book because if they did, he would sell even more copies of the book. So it was published, but schools didn't buy it, as I understand it. But that gives you an idea of the publicity-seeking Mark Chopper Reed, you know, and also the way that you have to keep going to get uh, what you've gotten a response, but it's harder to get more responses. So you have to work harder at it, like making a children's book, you know, trying to like get people's goat, you know? Okay. It's like that, uh, that funny article about Marilyn Manson going door to door, trying to shock people. We had to keep upping the ante. Did you see when Kanye had his house rebuilt on oh, God. For, yes. for his Donda listening party? And then Marilyn M- Manson <laughs> is up there. And I was like, wow, that's like that onion joke. Except it's <laughs> he's now oh. going door to door, trying to shock people. No, that was incredible. Like, it, like, it, it, like that stream was amazing. Cause the actual idea of it, like somebody commandeering a stadium to build a replica of their childhood home, like that, that is like a, a, an interesting art project. And then he immediately shits on everybody. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> like, like any goodwill you have in a project and immediately goes out the window and so you pull them out. <sighs> People told me, you got to see this movie. You have to see this performance by Eric Bana. He's like unbelievable. Um, so I, from that moment, I became interested in Andrew Dominic, and I became interested in how he managed to make a movie that was so wrong and so funny 
at the same time. Oh yeah, and I think it's part of the reason why I, I love those moments where like um where, where Chopper does kill somebody and immediately recoils because it makes the scenes where he's like like uh shining himself up in front of the media even funnier. We're talking about like cutting off toes and like really reveling in his image as being this this violent hard ass because Dominic shows you when he actually does kill people and injure them that he it's uh, it's, it's an unpleasant like he, like he basically has a panic attack each time he does it so like he undercut he, so he presents this image of of, of uh, chopper as being this threatening imposing figure but also shows that actually like he's a very conflicted human being about it and kind of a kind of almost wimpy in certain moments andrew dominic's feelings about chopper and chopper's mythos are revealed at the very end when he, you know, gloriously returns to prison after <laughs> being, <laughs> he gets away with the murder of the Turkish guy, but he also goes back to prison for maiming that other guy where he kneecapped him and drove him to the hospital. Uh, so he's really excited because he got some more media interviews and we see him in prison, you know, uh, showing off that he's being interviewed on TV to his cellmates. And you just realize like, some people just want to be in jail, you know, and like this guy uh, is now performing for the worst audience <laughs> imaginable. And that in, at the end of the day, he's like sitting in a prison cell. Like he's back where he started and he's thrown his entire life away and it is pathetic. Uh, and, and but uh, Dominic's not hitting you over the head with that moral. It's there to be seen like that. It, there is something ultimately pathetic about this person for all his larger than life persona. He's like willingly uh, marginalized himself. It's actually interesting too, because that, that ending kind of makes you think about the Irishman where, you know, you end that film with, you know, with, with De Niro at the retirement home, just alone, isolated in that chamber. And we watched it in the chopper. Like, yeah, you have the, his cellmate and a prison guard are watching his TV show. They leave him behind. And Dominic just holds him in that cell for like almost a minute, just looking at the TV just by himself, just abandoned and alone. The first Dominic movie, really good movie. It took him a few years to make a follow-up to it. I felt so sorry for uh, the kid who had to change the name of the marquee. Because you have to <laughs> spend like an hour and a half putting the title of the movie up on the marquee. It was called The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Uh, from 2007, starring Brad Pitt. Uh, I didn't see this movie when it came out. I caught up to it later uh and i and i thought it was okay i watched it again for this podcast and uh it's a very good movie you did you go and see it when it came out no no i, I missed it during its original run so I, I saw it this year i was a little put off by the running time um it was released as a two hour and 40 minute film and there were stories that it had at one point been almost four hours long so i did not uh go and see it it uh even though i heard it was good it also bombed it, uh, Warner Brothers had no real confidence in it, and we'll talk about all that in a few minutes. But it's another movie that is about uh, the relationship between celebrity and notoriety and criminal life. Well, and, and I think one thing with that film, this is actually a point I wanted to go chopper, is that what I really like about Dominic's approach to doing historical narratives is that he gives very little information. He just puts you right in the moment. Like with Chopper, like we get bits and pieces of his backstory, but like we never get like any like extended flashbacks. Uh, we don't get too much exposition. We're just, we're just meant to pick up the pieces as we go. And I think Jesse James is the same thing. Like, yeah, you have a narrator, but it kind of puts you in with Jesse and his gang. It doesn't give, doesn't lay all you too much, too much history to wade through. Like, it gets you right into the narrative from the beginning. 
And it's a film that is at the tail end of the James gang's legend, right? I mean, at this point, Jesse James uh, has these sort of hangers on and not really a, a, a real, the younger gang is gone at this point and it's just him and cousins and Robert Ford's older brother is part of the gang. And uh, uh, Sam Shepard plays, uh, I guess, Jesse James's older brother. Uh, this film certainly owes a debt to Terrence Malick, and you know that just from the fact that Sam Shepard's in the cast. Hilariously, when Dominic showed the movie to Terrence Malick, he told him that it was too slow. <laughs> oh, <man>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, visually, it, it's, an, it's a, a gorgeous film. I mean, just, just yeah. the way that they kind of, kind of the way he kind of brings to life this, this kind of old western, but like a like these tint type kind of style photography and just, it just, it looks like an old Western photograph brought to life. Cause this, the attention to detail, the aesthetics is, is really something else in this film. It, yeah. It, lo- it looks at once like old timey photographs and also Andrew Wyeth paintings too. It, it just has a very, very ancient look to it. It was shot by Roger Deakins. He was nominated for this and for no country for old men the same year for cinematography. He used um, old wide angle lenses on new cameras. And that's why you got that slight distortion on the edges of the frame because everything's not quite calibrated right. But it as a, and, and that kind of visual uh, detail or that kind of visual presentation had not yet become a cliche. Like you see it a lot in music videos yeah. now and stuff. But in 2007, it was uh, very startling to be using the this large canvas, but to be presenting these images in non-perfect ways, even though it's shot by a perfectionist. So it's really interesting, too, because I was wondering how you treat that effect. I thought, I thought maybe it's the Vaseline on the edges of the lens or something, the way you have that distortion, that kind of blurring on the side. So. I didn't know he used older lens. It was simply using uh, outmoded lenses on new cameras. Warner Brothers uh, and Dominic were having fights all the way through the production. It t- took nearly two years to get released. It was in editing for that long. Uh, Warner Brothers, I guess, assumed that they were getting a sexy Brad Pitt, Jesse James movie. And instead they get a movie where there's only one action sequence, which is in the first 15 minutes, the train robbery. That was the last robbery of the James gang. And that's a very exciting and kinetic scene. And then the whole rest of the movie is people talking and people in landscapes and it's not thrilling. And that only scene is pretty, I, I, love, I love the bit where the, um, they're extinguishing the lamps and he kind of puts his ear down to the rail and listening for the train coming. Yeah, they put on the mask. They, they almost have these specterish kind of ghostly masks with the bag over their head. It's like it's just a really just incredibly shot sequence. This film was took almost two years to finish uh, for various reasons: uh, fights with the studio and uh, perfectionism from Dominic and his editor. His original editor was Dylan Tishnor, who was Paul Thomas Anderson's editor. The film took so long to edit that, in fact, Dylan Tishnor left to go work on There Will Be Blood. And uh, that was sort of when Dominic started to lose the battle for control over the movie with Warner Brothers. Rooms seemed hotter when he was in them. Rains fell straighter. Clocks slowed. Sounds were amplified. He considered himself a Southern loyalist and guerrilla in a civil war that never ended. He regretted neither his robberies nor the 17 murders that he laid claim to. He used as the film's narrator the first assistant editor, whose name was Hugh Ross, 
he recorded a temporary narration track during the editing process that Dominic grew to prefer during this endless editing. Cause I guess the original plan was get Martin Sheen or Morgan Freeman to do the narration, yeah. but instead he used an unknown and unfamiliar voice, um, which I think works so well. It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't really matter who it is. In fact, having it be an unfamiliar voice uh, adds to the power of this movie. It's not a cliche to suddenly have Morgan Freeman coming on. Yeah, because you could almost imagine the person telling you the story is like an actual historian, or maybe mm-hmm. somebody who like lived at the tail end of this era. So that's so yeah. So I think having it be somebody who's, who's relatively anonymous definitely helps a lot. I mean, if it was Morgan Freeman, I think it would take you out of the picture. Dominic grew so enamored of Ross's narration that when they were getting closer to completion, they actually went in to do a re-recording of Ross's narration as not as a temp track, but as an actual recording in a studio. But he was like, it's not the same. And he wound up just keeping the temp track listening to it. It doesn't actually sound like a temp track, but uh, he was just so enamored of the voice and the way that the narration flows that he decided to hold on to it. And Ross, the narrator and assistant editor felt that one reason why Dominic held on to his narration was as a fuck you to Warner Brothers, since he had lost so many other battles in post-production. He was like, well, I'm keeping the narrator. (laughs) The narrator, uh, I read some reviews at the time of Jesse James, and they were like, some people didn't like the narration, or they felt that it was too literal minded, like that the narration was telling you what you're already seeing. But it worked for me. I didn't think that it was that literal minded. I kind of go in and out on it. I felt the ending, like the last, I think the last half hour of the narration, especially how it kind of, kind of, kind of explicates uh, Ford's fate. Like I think that narration really works at that point. I think earlier in the film, there are definitely moments where the narration I felt was felt a little like unnecessary. Ashley, what did you think about this movie's themes? Um, the 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 themes of celebrity and crime. I, I thought it was. Really, I, I thought I felt the. Um, especially towards the end, what I love about the film is this idea of, of the Fords where they're like, people will thank us for this. Like, you know, we've killed the big bad man and now like we can go see the surviving, the surviving victims' families. And they will love us and we will become famous. And to realize that's not the case, that people, people <laughs> think of you as these cowards, as dirtbag. Like, like the scene where uh, Robert is in the bar and Nick Cave is there, like doing the, singing the song about Jesse James's and like he's like, oh, his three children, and then four like basically has like a just freaks out and like shoots his gun. Goes, it was two children, not three. Like just like the weight of guilt in that moment. I think, I think it's the big. I love that idea of like yeah, it's celebrity that you know it's something that we want, but it doesn't necessarily transfer. It's not it's not like the Highlander. You don't kill Jesse James and absorb like his sexy and essence. get his power. Yeah. Um. The third act is where it, the film feels most abbreviated. Like for a long, it's a long movie that I had the patience for, uh, mostly because it looked and felt so great. And uh, it was filmed almost entirely in Canada, actually. I love the little scenes that you don't see too much of where Brad Pitt or Jesse James is walking around in the town. Like you see the city that he's in in the 1800s, and you can see, you know, old horse and carriages. You can see that they've done the, the, the art direction down a couple of blocks down the street, but that was all shot in Winnipeg. Yeah. I like when you see a lot of period detail, but you don't get a good look at any of it. I think that that's something that filmmakers often forget that you don't need to fetishize your set uh, the way that Tarantino did it. in once upon a time in Hollywood where, you know, they'll, they'll dress like three or four blocks of sunset and then they'll drive really fast down the street and you don't actually get to look at anything. 
Yeah, it's just you need a hint. The impression of it is enough. <laughs> and the other hint that there's been some stuff cut out is that we barely see Zoe Deschanel. She shows up as a singer named Dorothy Evans, who Robert Ford confides in about the assassination. She's like a showgirl. She's the only person that he expresses any regret for his actions. But she kind of comes in and leaves. Like, it, why would you ha- cast somebody that uh, famous if you're not going to use them? I think, didn't he have a Garrett Dillahunt in the cast at one point? But they cut all of the stuff. Yeah, he's he's barely in the movie. Um, it's also got a bunch of people who would later become famous, like Jeremy Renner's in it. And um, uh, when and Casey Affleck was nominated for an Oscar for this movie. Casey Affleck is one of those uh, separate the art from the artist guys, because yeah. I think he's such a good actor. But, you know, he's such a creep. Oh, totally. (laughs) But he's so good in this film. Um, And it's also this weird love story, too. Like, it's a a movie about um, the show business in some ways, because Jesse James is a celebrity in this time. And Robert Ford is a fan. And he loves Jesse James and feels betrayed by him. Jesse James makes fun of him for being his fan. And that's uh, then he decides to basically consume him and take his celebrity somehow, which doesn't work because um, the the popular culture that was sort of sprouting in America at that time with uh, newspapers and the beginnings of of folk music and recorded music. um, I guess Robert Ford thinks that he can become a celebrity the way Jesse James was by killing him. And it starts off looking that way, maybe. But by the uh, end of the movie, the the ballad of Jesse James basically redefines the terms of everything, that Jesse James was the great outlaw and that Robert Ford was the coward. And there's that dark irony at the end that Ford ended up being killed by somebody else just like him, who's also yes. kind of seeking, seeking glory. And in that person, uh, who's Edward Miller, he, he ends up you know, basically benefiting from it because he gets a – he basically gets a – he gets a – he gets his prison time forgiven for doing. He gets a pardon for what he did. Yeah, wasn't that funny when uh, James Carville shows up? <laughs> <laughs> Carville plays the governor who uh, promises <laughs> Robert Ford that uh, if he kills Jesse James, that he'll pardon him. And uh, he's pretty good in the movie, like for his lines of delivery. Even though it's James Carville, who you know I strongly dislike he quits himself in the performance but i read a funny quote that andrew dominic hated working with him he said i didn't want to hire him in the first place he came unprepared he couldn't get his lines out right it's like he has add it took us three hours to shoot that one scene oh my god (laughs) at least it's not obvious while you're watching it i think one of the interesting parallels in that film too is was um is that when we see Jesse's kind of inner circle collapse and he ends up like pulling the four members close to him, it made me think of like all those stories you have like Latter day celebrities where like, you know, they get more paranoid and isolated and you end up trying to have a hanger off because you just take advantage of them and use them and isolate them from their friends. I thought it was interesting to see that dynamic play out in an old Western environment. I love that scene where Brad Pitt comes over and uh, they're, you know, they've, they've killed one of the other gang members and have buried the body and don't want Jesse James to discover it. And they're having that dinner together. <laughs> and like, he just keeps asking these leading questions. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, what, I think one thing I like too about, about Pitt's characterization is that the way he plays Jesse, you, you get the charisma and you get why people are attracted to him, want to follow him. But there's also that, that constant sense of menace around him. That if you say or do the wrong thing, that he'll kill you. 
And there's that story he tells uh, Robert about uh, George Shepard, about the mm-hmm. guy who wanted to get close to him and he ended up killing him. And Bob, Robert's like, well, wh- why do you have a grudge against you? And he tells that story about how, oh, he thinks I killed his, his, like his, uh, his cousin and stole all that money. And the way that that whole conversation is framed, Jesse never explicitly says he didn't actually kill the cousin and take his money. They had left to your imagination to wonder if he actually did it. And you can believe that he would, too. Yeah, for sure. He's very good in it, Brad Pitt. Um, So this film got mishandled, I think, by Warner Brothers. Like, they thought that they had a sexy Jesse James movie. And when they discovered that they had a Terrence Malick movie, Meditation on Violence and Celebrity in the Old West and a Revisionist Western, they lost faith in the product and they pretty much dumped it. it. It got shown at the film festival circuit. It got good reviews, but I guess Warner brothers knew they had a tough sell on their hands from the title on down. And they, they never really gave it a proper release. It did get two Oscar nominations, but it cost $30 million to make. And it only made 15. Jeez. And I think that uh, Dominic's disappointment with working with Hollywood for the first time probably informed his next movie, which was Killing Them Softly. That is a great movie. That was from 2012. Um, It was disliked to a certain extent when it opened because it was one of the first movies to criticize Obama in any way, shape, or form at a time where it was very difficult to say anything uh, not complimentary about the hope and change stuff that Obama uh, personified. And it was the year that he was reelected. The movie uh, was made to come out before the election, but the Weinstein company released it and they put it out right after the election, just in case anybody tried to weaponize uh, the critique of Obama for political purposes, I guess. Yeah. Now that film, when I saw it, I mean, I saw it first time this year, it really knocked me out, and especially the ending, which I know we'll get to. But um, considering where the country is now over the last year, especially with the pandemic, and Brad Pitt's speech at the end hit me really hard. And it, like his, his whole America's not a country, it's a business. A lot of that really resonated in a very uncomfortable way. But in 2012, in the election between Obama and Romney, I guess they thought that uh, there is a difference between Obama and the, the Republicans, you know, how could you say anything negative about Obama? The movie's not really necessarily trashing Obama as much as it's saying that these guys are all the same and everything's the same and all the talk about hope and change. The movie's a very scabrous view of America and capitalism and that Obama is not necessarily the antidote for anything like that and that people are crazy to presume that he will make a difference. The movie is set on the eve of the 2008 um, national election between him and McCain. Throughout the film, we see and hear the voices of McCain and the Treasury Secretary and Obama on televisions in the movie. Uh, There's a lot of uh, political talk in the background in the movie throughout and lots of telling quotes too. Um, At one point... Uh, there's a scene where the where the these mobsters rob a, a mafia uh, casino, basically, uh, and we hear white noise on the TV during the robbery. So, like, while the bad guys in the movie are robbing the mafia game, we hear words like distribution of wealth and banking and stuff <laughs> like that through in the background. Some reviews at the time were like, "Oh, come on, a mafia card game where everyone's sitting there watching a George." 
W. Bush speech about the financial crisis? Come on. And it's like, I think Dominic understands that that's what TV is, is sort of noise in the background. I don't, I didn't. Uh, and that's, uh, th- that might've maybe upset people in 2012, but it's very prescient to watch in 2021. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's a film that's very much about systems and about how they abuse people and how they neglect them. And it's like, um, there's a certain phrase in the cult philosophy it goes as above so below like what's little reflects what's happening on a larger scale mm-hmm. i think what you see in the film with the criminal underworld it is a reflection of what capitalism is at large a quote from dominic he said as i started adapting the novel which we will talk about in a minute it was the story of an economic crisis and it was an economic crisis in an economy that was funded by gambling and the crisis occurred due to a failure in regulation it just seemed to have something that you couldn't ignore I always feel that crime films are ultimately about capitalism. Which I think is pretty dead on. I mean, it's, 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 you know, I hate bringing him up again, but again, it's like, look at Scorsese. If you compare like Wolf of Wall Street to his mafia movies, there's not much fundamental difference in those narratives, except one is a legit form of crime and one isn't. Now, you read the novel that this is based on? Yeah, I got Kogan's Trade by uh, George Higgins. George Higgins, the author of The Friends of Eddie Coyle also. And which, like that book, this one's a very dialogue-heavy book. I think like 80% of it is just people talking. The plot of of Kogan's Trade is about these low-life criminals in in a blighted landscape. The movie is filmed in New Orleans, but is supposed to be any town USA. They never really come out and say that it's New Orleans, but we can see the devastation. Uh, post-Katrina devastation and and extreme poverty in the film. And the movie begins with uh, Scoot McNary walking out of a tunnel through a basic uh, hurricane full of garbage bags, <laughs> like just trash flying everywhere. But this incredibly dissonant soundtrack when it comes out. Like, 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 like there's, there's this, this striking noise that he employs when the movie begins where it keeps cutting from uh, Scoot McNary walking to like these black to the credits and you have these sounds that sound like metal scraping happening in the background. So yeah, it's like we were dropped right into this uh, blighted landscape, but we see uh, a billboard matching billboards for McCain and for Obama uh, and, and Obama's message of hope and change. And I guess Dominic takes a very dim view of the rhetoric of politics versus the reality of people's surroundings that, uh, there's no possible hope and change in this landscape. Like nobody has anything. I can have to say with this film, it, it, this is either a bug or feature people. It's not subtle. <laughs> See, it, the, the, yeah. the social contract is not subtle. Even stuff like there's a scene where Ben Mendelsohn plays one of the, one of the, the stick up men who works Scooter McNary. Like he's getting high in his, in his room and they're playing like the Velvet Underground's heroin while he's shooting up, which is like, that's like a Robert Zemeckis level, like needle drop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that's on the level of, okay, they're running through the jungle. We need to song soundtrack this. Run through the jungle. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I gave it a pass. I know what you mean. I mean, yeah, it's like uh, the way that uh, somebody would use what's going on uh, during a Vietnam montage kind of stuff. You know, like, what happens at Chopper, too, where in my film opens, like you get all these montage of like prison walls and don't fence means playing in the background. Yeah. You're like, ah, it's fine. Like, like it, it, it's not subtle, but you know, sometimes bluntness is required. For sure. Um, ben Mendelssohn is incredible in this movie. He's an Aussie junkie. Um, his big plan when, when he and Scoot McNary get hired to uh, rob this mafia card game 
is that he's going to move to Florida and sell purebred dogs and <laughs> use the money to buy heroin. <laughs> like that's his big goal. Oh man. And they have this really great, like almost like a, almost like a family guy cutaway scene where it cuts like Ben Mendelsohn and like his buddy, like, like they're like hanging out by a car, like lighting stuff on fire. And the car is an explosion propelling the car backwards and knocking his friend across the room. Yeah. The first time I watched it, I died laughing. It was like it's like a, it was like a jackass scene. Like it's dropped in the middle of this film for no reason, but it's perfect. There's a really gross uh, self-owning scene where Mendelssohn and McNary are in a car, and uh, they're talking about chicks or something, and they're both pathetic losers. Uh, <laughs> Mendelssohn is talking about this girl that he's been with, and she's uh, no uh, Scoot McNary is talking about this girl that he's been with, and he says. The next words to come out of this girl's mouth, she says, I'm going to kill myself. And Ben Mendelssohn says, they all say that. That's the first thing they think of to say. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> and it's like, guys, the girls are trying to tell you something about what losers you are. Well, I think what's cool about Mendelssohn's character, too, is that you know he, he's this classic trope you see in crime films. Where he's like, obviously the doomed, sketchy guy he's going to die. Like, yeah. He's high all the time. He makes one bad decision after the other. He can't stop talking about the job to people. But it's like he's so unprofessional, it actually saves his life. Because he has to get deported. He gets arrested and deported. He escapes all of this because of that. I mean, the long and the short of of this movie is that um, these lowlifes, one played by Vincent Curtola from The Sopranos, hires Scoot McNary and Ben Mendelsohn to rob this uh, mafia card game that is a sitting target because it's run by this uh, sketchy gangster played by Ray Liotta, whose card game had been robbed a few years earlier by him that he arranged it in an inside man kind of way. Like he, he hired some guys to rob all these gangsters and he acted like he was uh, innocent that they were just robbed. They, he did years later confess to being behind it. But they all like this guy so much that they nobody does anything about it. It's like, ah, water under the bridge. So these mobsters are like, we'll rob this guy because everyone will think that it's him. And if he says, I didn't do it, I didn't have anything to do with it, no one will believe him. That's their big plan. So they rob him. And even Ray Liotta's character warns them that they're going to be in a world of shit if they actually go forward and do this. Uh, but they rob the game. And that's when Brad Pitt shows up as Jackie Cogan with an amazing intro uh, coming in uh, to the man comes around by Johnny cash. He's even described just before we see Brad Pitt as uh, a white horse coming in to save the day. So he's basically the regulator in this allegory. He's the guy who comes in to realize uh, who did it and who needs to be made an example of. He knows that, um, Ray Liotta's character has nothing to do with it, but he can't be allowed to live because that will create a lack of confidence in the system. They have to re just like the um, economic crash that they have to go after some, they have to make an example of somebody or else people will try it again. Right. And his point of contact is uh, the driver played by Richard Jenkins. He's like one of my favorite like character actors. Yes. Yeah, he's such a, he's, he just plays such a, a really great put upon slime ball in this movie. He plays a, a mafia guy who seems to have a, a a relationship to the real world. Like he seems to be some kind of like 
white collar executive or something. He's a middleman between the mobsters who want vengeance and the the guy who's been hired to carry out the violence. He, yeah, he looks and acts like an accountant, essentially. Yeah, he's very removed from it. Like He's the guy explaining to Brad Pitt what needs to be done. But Brad Pitt uh, is a very smart man. Like He knows that it's obviously not Ray Liotta who did it, because who would be that stupid to do it twice in a lifetime? But he cannot be allowed to live. He must be made an example of. And there's a very, very gross scene where uh, these thugs uh, basically like beat the shit out of Ray Liotta. Uh, and that's a very upsetting sequence. It, that's a very, very violent sequence that lingers on all the violence. Well, absolutely. And it's interesting, too, because I think one of the Jackie's roles in that film, too, is that he basically plays the only real professional. Where he, he has to enforce the system, but the system itself is faulty and it's failing. Like at one point, um, you know, after he ends up killing Liotta's character, they have to call in an outside hitman because his whole philosophy is like, you know, he doesn't like to upset his victims or like make the, he doesn't, he wants to want, doesn't want them to know that he's coming. And Squirrel, uh, Vincent Curatola's character, kind of has a relationship with him. So he wants to bring in an outside guy to kill him, not complicate things. So he brings in uh, Mickey, who's played by, uh, you know, the god, the late, dearly departed James Gambolfini, the outside hitman to do the deed. And of course, he's just a complete fuck up who spends all this time in a hotel room, like, just he running up his room service bill, getting dropped and sitting with hookers. So it's, it's one of those fa- it's one of those interesting of capitalism too, where it's like it's it's a system where it should function well and it should be a meritocratic merit, structure, but it really isn't. Um, and you know, Brad Pitt's the only person who basically is holding the system together because nobody else can do their job. Right. The Gandolfini performance, which is a very good performance, is kind of uh, neither here nor there when it comes to the grand narrative. Like he doesn't do anything. He, he's flown in, he gets drunk, he complains about this and that, and Brad Pitt knows that he's incapable of carrying out anything. And they wind up not using him. I guess even Brad Pitt has him arrested, or, or he drops a dime on him, Yeah, I believe. Uh, he's but, he's yeah, on parole. Yeah, he's on parole, so he's violated his terms of parole. But, uh, the, you know, so he's not going to use him after all. But, you know, a lot of filmmakers would just take that whole 10-minute part out because it's not connected to the main film. It's extra sweet to watch now because we lost James Gandolfini. He's very good in this film. Yeah, he's great in this film. But I do think the thematically is really interesting because it does kind of, again, point to the idea of, 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 a, of a failing system. Where it's like in a different era, like this guy would have been efficient. He would have came in. He would have clipped the people he was clip. But he's out to lunch. And, like, and there's no real empathy. Like, you know, for Rapid's character doesn't really try and help him. Like he just gets rid of him because he realizes he's an inconvenience. We should also mention that incredible over-the-top scene where Brad Pitt kills Ray Liotta in super slow motion. Uh, I think that no other movie should be allowed to use Love Letters by Ketty Lester after its perfect use in Blue Velvet. This is another thing where, you know, there's a little on-the-nose music cues in this movie that I will allow as the judge. Like, I will allow it. Uh but I think of Blue Velvet when I think of that song. And uh, oh, yeah. in this movie, it's the accompaniment to this incredible super slow motion over the top uh, murder of Ray Liotta, who takes a major beating in this movie. Like oh, we see yeah. him get beaten to within an inch of his life. And then we get to see him shot to pieces in super slow motion. Oh, the poor bastard. One of the cameras they used for that uh, sequence was shooting at 10,000 frames per second. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's, it's such a weird scene too because like 
the film goes out of its way to repeat this idea that like Brad Pitt's all about efficiency and like just killing people as quickly as humanly possible. And the first person he whacks, it takes like an eternity to kill this guy on screen. It takes like three minutes because not only do we see him getting perforated with shots, but then the car gets like sideswiped by two different cars because <laughs> it keeps <laughs> driving. It's driving without a driver anymore, you know, and then it goes right into the intersection and gets T-boned like twice. <laughs> and all we see is just blood and destruction and broken glass. And it's just so over the top, so excessive. It's almost, like this, it's almost like Ray Liotta as an actor has built up so much bad karma for his various villainous characters. It's like it all pays off in this film. Yes. <laughs> um, and then he's got the two loser uh, drug guys who get referred to as kids a lot in the film, even though Ben Mendelsohn is no kid. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know how he was so sweaty. It was, looked like yeah. he was covered in baby oil or something. He's just, he looks like garbage. Poor Scoot McNary. Like, I, I think one of the things to the film, too, is that for, for a while, it almost convinces you that maybe, maybe Jackie will let him go at the end. Like, it almost fools you into thinking that's a possibility. And it's just, after you see what happens to Ray Liotta, it's like, there's no way. There's no way any of these guys are going to get out of this. Ray Liotta can't make it. These two, these two assholes are doomed. I want to talk about the ending with you, because it's a t- terrific ending. Oh, it's fantastic. Let's also uh, give... A shout out to Andrew Dominic for making a 97 minute long movie instead of a 164 minute movie. Most movies now are like at least two hours, maybe two and a half sometimes. But this is a very efficient uh, crime story, even with the detour of the 10 minute stuff of Gandolfini. That's not really uh, all that germane to the movie in terms of the plot motive, the plot mechanics. Uh, it still comes in at 97 minutes. Good for him. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, because like, even with stuff like Gandolfini or if, like the jackass exploding car scene, like, there's, even if he puts a bunch of stuff in it that's not really relevant, like, it doesn't feel like there's any fat. Like, it feels like a, a very lean and propulsive film. Jackie goes to collect the money that he was promised and gets told by the Richard Jenkins character that it's not actually going to be as much as we agreed. And this is the night that Obama's won the presidency and there are fireworks in the streets and everyone's happy. And Brad Pitt gets off a fantastic uh, soliloquy that closes the film. This guy wants to tell me we're living in a community. Don't make me laugh. I'm living in America. And in America, you're on your own. America's not a country. It's just a business. Fucking pay me. Oh, it's brilliant. Uh, it, it's interesting too because um, in the book, the ending that the, the ending cuts off right before he does that, that soliloquy. Because in the book, like you know, he, when Cogan uh, goes to Driver, Driver basically does the same thing as the movie, where he's like, you know, he he un- tries to underpay him. Jackie counts the money and goes, well, "What's the deal?" And, he, and Driver explains, "Well, you know, Dylan had this rate. This is what we paid him. This is what we're paying you." And in the book, Jackie was accepts it. Like he grumbles, like in the future, it's going to cost more money. But he, he, he accepts being shortchanged. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is in Dominic's version, that's not what happens at all. And this movie was the first major American movie to offer any kind of critique to Obama and to do it in a way that right-wingers couldn't really go along with. Like, if the right-wing MAGA people wanted to use Killing Them Softly as a movie that really sticks it to Obama, then there's all this other stuff they have to co-sign on to about the uh, corruptness of the American uh capitalist system right and, and in the film where it's like 
when I look at America over the last, especially over the last two years, especially with the pandemic, where it's like the you know the the eroding of the social safety net, just the lack of government support, the fact that you know people in this country can't even agree to put on like masks or get vaccines to help their fellow citizens, like that feeling of isolation everywhere, everywhere or, or this hyper individualism where where my freedom, my convenience matters more than you, matters more than anything else. Mm-hmm. So. When, when you watch that film, that, that line about, you know, America, you know, you're on your own, it's like, it doesn't feel wrong. <laughs> Fortunately, it really doesn't. No, but it upset people in 2012 because uh, people hadn't quite figured out how do you criticize Obama without coming across as a conservative or how do you criticize him without coming off as a racist? Right, right. It's um, it's kind of like a... When, when, when Hillary ran for office both times, where it's hard to tell people, like, I don't want to vote for this person. It's not because I'm a misogynist. It's because their values don't represent me. Mm-hmm. Because it's like the representation where it's like, yeah, it's important to put people in positions of power that are not all just old white men. Like, that's, it's important to have, to have that diversity up top. But if the people who come up to the top of the power, if, it, if the only difference is that they look different, it doesn't really matter because if they're proposing the same agenda of capitalism, the same kind of corporate first mentality, what good is it at a certain point? And Obama, that's a problem. Like he, he put on this kind of patina, this, this, uh, this glamour of being progressive when he first ran for office. And almost as soon as he went to office, like that glamour dropped. Yeah. And he was a centrist pushing the same agenda that the, the center of the Democratic Party has been pushing for decades. It's, and we saw how Obama conducted things during the uh, Democratic primary, like that he uh, was prepared if the party select looked like it was going to select Sanders, he was going to intervene. As it turned out, he didn't really need to. Right, and we saw what he, how he approaching the Black, like the you know the BlackRock pipeline protest with uh, Occupy, where it's like, you know, time and again when there was kind of like a, a, a like mass public outrisings, he was not on the right side of it. He helped put them down. I mean, like, he went to Flint, Michigan, and he's, like, pretending to drink the water and be like, oh, it's fine, where it's, like, it's more of the same. And I think people don't want to hear that, but it's, it's unfortunately, it's true. It's like the liberal, it's like the liberal perspective on war, where it's, like, we have to act like we're even more bloodthirsty and more gung-ho and patriotic and Republican. It's, like, the only way you can win is you have to offer an alternative to militarism. That you can't, if you're basically saying, I'm even more of a hard ass than the other guy, no matter what, you're, let, you're letting the other party set the agenda. They, they get they get the set, they, they get the tempo, and all you're going to respond is saying, no, no, we're more of that than they are. It's a losing proposition. And this is what we're seeing now with all these Republicans who are like saying, oh, I love the Taliban. I can't believe I agree with the Taliban. <laughs> Or the thing with like with Obama and Biden, where they they constantly promote this idea of like bipartisanship, where it's like, look, we just need to meet the Republicans on their level. They have good people on their side too, and it's like they will never work with you because it because it gets their base hot to go against you. Like it yeah. makes them look strong that they don't want to participate with you. Yeah. To to American public, unfortunately, like bipartisanship looks weak. And for some reason, our side loves to do that shit. They love it. It never works. I'm going to read you a liberal galaxy brain tweet. I'm going to uh, spare the author's name, but this was from July 20th, 2020. I was looking around for some uh, comments on Twitter about killing them softly. And I found this gem watched killing them softly earlier on Netflix. And it had clips of Obama speaking throughout. I kept thinking, man, I miss when we had a president that had a brain and class. (laughs) 
President Obama, you are sorely missed. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Were you watching the movie, though? Because the movie is not really a pro-Obama movie. <laughs> like, this is just anti-orange anti man bad galaxy brain thinking. Like, that you can watch a movie that is that scabrous about capitalism and actually compares the um, the American capitalist system that rescued the bailout of all these corporations to these gangsters that rob a mafia card game and uh, get taken care of from within. Uh, you know, it like it's not about, uh, it's about restoring people's confidence in a broken system. But it's also, also like the most basic form of media literacy. Like, like, if you're watching that movie, it's like, why do you think he's putting all these clips of Obama? Do you want to be psyched about it? Like, it makes no sense otherwise. It's not like he's going to show this gritty crime drama and have these random, like, political uh, little, little sound bites happen in the background to get you jazzed about the guy. Like, it doesn't make sense. But, yeah, I, I, I think this movie has aged very well. If it was misunderstood in 2012, it's very hard to misunderstand today with the hindsight of... Uh, of how the, that economic crisis was a train wreck and that, uh, that the Obama actually didn't really do all the things that we were all led to believe he would do. Uh, it was a movie that was made when that was a fresh realization and it's only gotten um, a little bit richer with time. It was not that successful a movie, but I would encourage my listeners catch up to this film I, yeah, I, I dare say, if, if you only watch one Dominic film, to me, this would be my pick. You recommended that I watch Dominic's most recent film, which is a documentary about Nick Cave called One More Time with Feeling uh, from 2016. Tell us a little more about that one. Well, that one was um, a documentary that um, Dominic did that, that followed kind of um, Cage's recording of his album Skeleton Tree, which was... But it wasn't just about that. It was also about him dealing, coming to terms with the loss of his son Arthur. So it's this film that's both both kind of exploration of this uh, of Cave's artistic processes, creative relationships of Warren Ellis, the people he worked with. But it's also about grief, and it's about how he kind of channels those emotions that that, that really raw loss, and and works his way through it through his music. It takes a while in the film for that true subject to come out. It's mostly Nick Cave working on this film and alluding to grief over the course of the movie. He finally names the grief, which is the loss of his son. He died from an accidental fall off a cliff uh, near Brighton where they live. He was only 15 when he died. Uh, and Cave has obviously been devastated in this loss. And the, the loss suffuses the music uh, that he was working on. Very Leonard Cohen-esque album, I think. Oh, Yeah. And it's interesting too because Dominic's had a very long relationship with Cage, like a, like uh, Cave, where like you know when they did the assassination of uh, Jesse James, both Nick Cave and his longtime collaborator Warren Ellis did the music for that film, and also Cave's little cameo as like the balladeer in the bar uh, later in the movie. Mm -hmm. But also in Chopper, the the guy who wrote the music for Chopper was Mick Harvey, who was a longtime member in both the Birthday Party and in uh, Bad Seats. Yes. For a long time, he was Nick Cave's right-hand man until about 2009 when he left the band. It, it goes back further than that, Ashley. I found out that Dominic first met Cave in the very late 80s. Um, Cave was basically thought of as the, this, the scary artiste of Melbourne. 
and uh, not Dominic went to film school in Melbourne. His new girlfriend had broken up with Nick Cave three months earlier, and Nick Cave had even written a song about her using her name. Uh, so they had a very awkward uh, introduction. <laughs> he stole his girl. <laughs> but Cave and Dominic eventually came, became collaborators. Cave also wrote a song for Chopper that wasn't used. You do hear one song by the birthday party at Bojangles. Yeah, release the bats. I remember that. Yes, yes. Uh, The visual style of this movie is very inspired, and I would love to see it again someday in the way that it was made. It's shot in color and in black and white, but a lot of the um, black and white footage is in 3D. It was inspired by Cave's collection of stereoscopic photographs from the olden days. Dominic said that the basic idea visually of this movie is that the 3D involves you and the black and white distances you. So watching them together uh, gives you a new kind of way to see the world. And I would love to see this movie again with that in mind, because the black and white photography is very luminous. But um, I think that the, the idea of pushing you away and pulling you in is very emblematic of not only the album that Cave was recording, but this entire process. Oh, Cave yeah. wanted to make this movie so that he wouldn't have to talk about the loss of his son. He didn't want to have to talk to the media about it, but he had to say something. So he he made this film. He didn't make it to make money. He made it basically as an artistic statement. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting too, because um, like, because it also shows like that you look at how like um, with Chopper and with uh, Jesse James, where where we talked about earlier, that idea that Dominic puts you into these historical moments. It doesn't really get any kind of context. He also does this very well. The Cave documentary, where Cave is. A musician whose, whose work extends all the way back you know, to the eight. Like he's written, he's written, I think at least over twenty albums. He has such a, a, a elaborate history. You could spend, you could do like a six-hour film on his on his life and not even touch all of it. But yeah. Dominic doesn't go into any of that. Like he starts no. off with the recording, and we get little bits and bobs of Cave's past, but he keeps it very grounded in the present. And I think that is what makes it such a compelling documentary. Is that he doesn't waste time on trying to talk about Cave's past unless it's relevant to his family. I mean, because it keeps it very focused on that, on that trauma and on the, and on the creative work he's doing right at that moment. When Dominic was making this movie about the skeleton tree, he realized fairly early on in the interview process and stuff that you got to talk about Arthur. It has to come up somehow. It can't be ignored. Um, So he and Cave had an arrangement that Dominic could ask him any question he wanted no holds barred, but that cave had veto power on what could be used in the movie. So he is as forthcoming as he will be. Uh, and most of the forthcomingness of the, of the story is held back to the final, uh, half hour or so of the movie. And in fact, the movie even ends where we hear, um, music that where Arthur is singing it and we see the cliff that Arthur fell from the movie never says how Arthur died. If you know, then it's quite moving. When he showed it to Cave and his wife Susie and Warren Ellis and anyone else who was involved in the movie, Cave was furious. He hated the last third of the movie. He felt really, um, he felt really opened up in a way that he didn't want. But he actually decided to leave it to the director's vision. He actually realized that the fact that he was upset was catharsis, and he relinquished control over the finished product. So. He allowed him to do it, even though he wasn't happy with it. He yielded to another artist. Yeah. Well, interesting too to think about the, how much they're kind of kindred spirits. But so much of Cave's music is also about 
kind of these outsized like legendary criminals like Stagger Lee. Like how much of his work is also about kind of uh, legendary outlaws and the kind of the reputations they burnish. So it, the fact that those two people work together and work together as well as they did makes sense to me. Okay, it's just it's fascinating when you think about of all the musicians that came out of kind of the post punk era. I think no one else has his degree of like prolificness and is still doing compelling work now. I mean, it, it's, it's a really a staggering achievement to consider just how active he's been. Now, he hasn't released a single bad album in, God, 30, 30 plus years. Speaking of uh, creative interference, we should also close our discussion on Dominic to talk about his upcoming film, Blonde which has been in development since 2010. This is the movie that he's been trying to make uh, for almost 12 years now. He finally got it into production. Uh, it's been in production development hell for so long that they've switched leads. Originally, it was supposed to be Naomi Watts, and then it became Jessica Chastain. It's a movie about Marilyn Monroe uh, based on the Joyce Carol Oates book. But now it features Anna de Armas, who actually looks a lot like Marilyn in the photos I've seen. Yeah, it's it's it, it's pretty. Like, I, I never would have thought the caster in that role, but it's pretty dead on. Dominic admits that his films have been fairly bereft of women. For instance, in um, "Killing Them Softly," it takes fifty-eight minutes for a woman to have a line of dialogue in the movie, and she's billed as Hooker in the end credits. This is his first film with a female protagonist, according to Oates, and take it. As you will, if you've seen the photos that Joyce Carol Oates has taken of her own foot, for instance, <sighs> on Twitter, she said that the movie's excellent and that it's also very feminist, which she was not expecting. But Netflix is has been stalling on releasing this movie. It was scheduled to premiere at Venice, uh, but Netflix pulled it out of the festival and announced that it's coming out in 2022. There's talk that Netflix and Dominic are currently at loggerheads over the NC-17 rating that it would currently qualify for. Which, I mean, good for Dominic. Cause I feel like I feel like if this is a studio like back in the 90s, I could almost see relenting. But with Netflix, I mean, once a film hits streaming, there's probably not going to be a director's cut. There's probably mm -hmm. not going to be a DVD unless Criterion picks it up at some point. So whenever Vision hits streaming, that's going to be the only version of that film that's probably going to exist in official channels. But Netflix always makes a big deal about being the studio that's allowing artists to be artists or, you know, um, and wanting to make prestigious films like Roma and The Irishman and to give great filmmakers their platforms. And they're doing the uh, bomb back white noise now. And so you would think that they would be on the side of the artist, but it sounds like they are upset with the sexual explicit material in this film, even though they're Netflix. It sounds to me like they wanted to have. I think they pictured this film was going to be an Oscar contender. Like you have mm -hmm. this, you have this relatively well-liked actress playing an iconic role, and so it seemed like it was going to be Oscar bait. And I think traditionally, like sexually explicit films, um, just don't get recognized by the Academy. So you have a film where you're like, oh yeah, Marilyn Monroe gets raped in it, and there's like a, there's like a bloody cunnilingus scene. To them, that I think their worry is, oh, that's going to be very hard for us to sell, like as, as Oscar gold. It's stupid, but I think it's probably it's probably part of the reason behind it. And it's yet another example of like, what did you think you were getting? I mean, this is the guy who made Chopper. This is the guy who made Jesse James, which annoyed Warner Brothers so much. Uh, so you sign Andrew Dominic up to make a movie about Marilyn Monroe, and then you get upset that it's too sexually explicit and too disturbing. 
right? And, it's like, and he had the book. You had his script. I mean, when you gave him the money, they knew what the project was. Like this, it's not like he went in later and, and added all this stuff in. I mean, it was there from day one. This was the thing that it, that confused Hugh Ross so much, the narrator of Jesse James, the editor on the production. He was like, didn't you read the screenplay? Like, he delivered what was written down on paper, and now you're upset. <laughs> I think part of it, too, is with Netflix, like, you know, their strategy is just to flood the market with them. Um, Pardon the C word, content. Like they're just they're about putting out stuff constantly. So anything that has controversy to it is normally a good thing for them because it gives people an excuse to keep watching something past its like one weekend release relevant window. You know, because mm-hmm. with Netflix they, they release something and it's dead by the end of the week. Either press picks up on it right away or it's it's a goner. With this film, that kind of controversy. Oh, here's a sexually explicit Marilyn Monroe film that would probably have legs. So it's, it feels kind of weird that they don't want to exploit that. Yeah, and Netflix could use all the help they can get with the the burnishing of their reputation for all the the quality work that they have brought to their service. A great deal of it is trash. Well, it's interesting because you pointed out earlier that you know Netflix's reputation for being artist friendly, but it's like this is what happens with with disruptor industries. They always they always present themselves as being the more ethical, more modern, progressive alternative. And once they achieve power and once they take over the market, they immediately kind of start backsliding back to the, the, the bad habits of the competitors. So like Netflix, you know, they were originally proposed as an alternative to film studios, but now they are a film studio. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of, I think, going back to the same kind of habits that you saw people like Weinstein back in the day. I'm on board for the next Andrew Dominic movie and anything else he does from here. I mean, I think he's a, a very, very good filmmaker. He's such a good filmmaker that I'm in, I'm willing to overlook things like having a scene where a guy's shooting heroin to the Velvet Underground <laughs> song heroin because everything else that he does is so good that being a little on the nose from time to time is fine. Yeah. <laughs> Um, before we go, Ashley, I wanted to talk with you about our, our hero, Tony Leung. Oh, yes. <laughs> Ashley and I are big Wong Kar Wai fans from way back. And here is Tony Leung starring as the bad guy in Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Big score for Tony Leung. But what I love about this man is that he's not promoting the movie. He's in it. He got paid, but he did not show up for the premiere. He's not doing press. I think it's beautiful. I think he has the Michael Caine philosophy, you know, like I just, I'm just there to buy a house. Leave me alone. Now, finally, Tony Leung is getting a big payday. The impossibly good looking, but 59 year old Tony Leung, he's managed to avoid aging. Yeah. He does have kind of the the Dick Clark gene going on. (laughs) He looks great in the movie. I I did ask a leading question on Twitter. I said, how long is uh, the screen time for Tony Leung in this movie? And people said, actually, he's on screen a lot in this film. I think he's speaking English, though, too, which uh, he does speak English, but he's never been in a movie as an English speaker. Well, and all the reviews I've read have pretty much said that he's probably the most compelling presence on the screen. Of course, he's totally young. Like, if you have him, you better well use him. And the problem is, too, is like, it's, um, you know, it's one of the more obscure characters Marvel has. Like, like Guardians of the Galaxy was a, was a fluke, where it's like, yeah, that, that was probably the most obscure properties they ever released, and it did really, really well. But like Shang-Chi and next up, they have Eternals after that, or like two, again, two properties that 
you just have not really much cachet, even among comic nerds. And so you combine that with the pandemic, like I'm really curious to see how these films are going to do. Like when I went to see the X Men in the year 2000, I'm not, a, I wasn't a giant X Men guy, but I knew many of the characters already just from being aware of popular culture. I knew who uh, Magneto was and I knew who Wolverine was. I could not with a gun to my head, tell you the names of any of the Eternals. Right. <laughs> it, it's basically Jack Kirby's new God with the serial numbers filed off. Like, <laughs> it, it's really his dematerial. And you, I also get a headache when I see the photos of the, the panels from Jack Kirby's Eternals comic and how phenomenal the color is and how insane the detail is. Like the colors are bursting off the panel, but this movie just looks drab. Like just, yeah, and I, know I, I tweet about this the other day, but I do think with this like whole Marvel new phase where now they're like, Oh, let's cross over the Sony verse. Let's bring in all these different, like the X-Men, every Spider-Man ever. Like, it all just feels really desperate to me now, and I, I, I just, I like, I, you know, I, again, I, I enjoyed the MCU films for a while for what they were, just just popcorn films. And once Endgame came out, I'm like, okay, I'm jumping off the train because this is too many movies. And like, yeah. and now you have like multiple TV series, and now you have more movies. And now you have movies crossing over other film universes, and different versions of characters that already exist. It feels like all the convolutedness of comic books. But now presented in billion-dollar media, which seems like an insane strategy. With a lot riding on that you already know and love all these characters, I think that's the big mistake they're making. And it's like comic books can kind of get away with it because they have like a, like a, at least a hundred years of history at this point. Like people are used to just tuning out a bunch of stuff, but but th- but with Marvel, they still have the expectation of you have to have watched everything we've done in order to understand what's going on. And at a certain point, there's just going to be too much stuff for people to buy in. It's like it's why I don't watch Doctor Who. Like mm-hmm. I don't, I don't have time for forty years of television. Sorry, like I'm, mm-hmm. I heard it's good, but I just, I won't make that commitment. The initial responses to Shang Chi have been flowing in, and it's been the usual uh, Grace Randolph comparing it to Stanley Kubrick and Christopher Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> it's like sure. I mean, at, at this point, like at this point, Marvel films are ba- they're basically critic proof at this point. Honestly, yeah. I mean, the ghost of Roger Ebert could materialize on the floor and basically give it a North-style drumming, and people would still flock to see it and make sure it has a 100% of the tomato meter. I'm a little worried that uh, people are going to start, uh, the Ben Shapiro types are going to start lording it over Marvel if their movie with a Asian-American lead bombs. <laughs> that, you know, that a lot of people will use this as a pretext for, uh, you know, oh, you go get woke and go broke kind of stuff you know like loving it to watch a movie underperform they would have loved it if black panther had been a huge bomb as it turned out it was one of the biggest hits of all time pandemic or no pandemic if it opens to a smaller box office than everybody has expected from marvel movies they're going to jump to the conclusion that it's because you're catering to the woke brigade and the poc brigade oh yeah it's too bad it is too bad, but but yeah, people have been doing the comics for years. Have been making the argument. Oh, you made you made Captain America black. Well, that's why nobody wants to read the books anymore. I mean, that, that bullshit's mm-hmm. been there for a while. But yeah, I think eventually, when the films start underperforming, it'll it, they'll start bringing that into that 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 trash to the film discourse as well. Mm-hmm. 
So Ashley, it's been great talking to you. I'm, I was so glad to watch the complete films of Andrew Dominic. Uh, it was your suggestion that we do Killing Them Softly, but we opened it up to talk about all four of his films. They're all worth seeing. Oh, absolutely. No, this was this has been a pleasure. And just being able to, re- to revisit all the films and talk about them with you has been, has been, has been really great. Ashley, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, well, I'm uh, at Ashley Nastool. Uh, Emperor Norton's my handle name. But yeah, I'm on there talking about movies and wrestling that are bullshit. So come say hello. We should talk about a wrestling movie sometime. There are. Oh, I would, I would love that. Yes, I, I would very much love getting going down that rabbit hole. I haven't seen Beyond the Mat, the documentary. I heard that's a good one. I haven't seen that one either. Like, I, I, also, I've been meaning to watch Dark Side of the Ring, but I just haven't gotten around to those yet. Dark Side of the Ring? Which one is that? It's like a TV series. Um, that I, think, I think it's on Netflix, but like each episode is about a different like controversial wrestling story, like Chris Benoit and that kind of stuff. So, Apparently very well produced, but I, I haven't seen any of them yet. Are they blowing the lid on the fact that wrestling's uh, staged? <laughs> That's always my favorite bit of douchebag. People are like, you know it's fake, right? Like, no shit. They, they time it for commercial breaks. Of course it's fake. <laughs> but yes, if you ever want to do like a wrestling episode, I would be extremely delighted to talk about that stuff. Ashley, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you very much. This, this has been fun. And yes, thank you for having me on. Well, we'll have to leave it here, but we'll have another episode of Junk Filter in the next few days. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like and subscribe to it, and please tell your friends. If you want to support the podcast directly, we do have a Patreon. Patrons get access to bonus episodes, and you can sign up by going to patreon.com slash junkfilter. Please follow us on Twitter at junkfilterpod. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawkins. Thank you for listening. Thank you.